0: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: And so the crowdfunding allowed our customers to become our own investors, right? And the only way we were able to successfully do that is with that Facebook group. So when we first launched the campaign, we dropped the link in that group and our customers invested A few hundred thousand within a couple hours and i was like oh my gosh like this is how much they believe in what we're doing you know
2: it was kind of crazy this whole thing because we had been building a community we've been telling people how important community was to your success in business but this really really showed us because not only do we have our customers but there are people in chicago who believe in us there are our friends and our network who believe in us and so now Chromix is customer and community owned, right? There are almost 5,000 investors, small investors that just believe in what we're doing and they want to see it succeed in the future. And like, I think we hit like a million dollars in less than four hours and we were just like mind blown.
3: You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Lagorio Chapkin. Today's episode: Listen to your community. This episode is, as its title says, a lot about building a loyal following, a community of fans, and using their loyalty and their input, not to mention their dollars, to build your company but it's also a story that's uniquely about that last part, the dollars. That's because my guests today, Kim and Tim Lewis, the founders of CurlMix, a clean beauty brand for curly hair, have one of the more unusual paths to funding their company I've ever heard. It's not just one straight line or even a curl. It's more like a zigzag through chance through a literal game, into Silicon Valley through a couple of true believers, and then right back to their community. And that crazy journey through multiple funding methods, it really worked. (laughs) CurlMix didn't just grow. It grew super fast, landing at number 93 on the 2021 Inc. 5000 after attaining more than 4,000% growth over the past three years. These two Chicago entrepreneurs who started in their shared kitchen, yes, they are married, met long before starting the company. Though Tim always seemed to know that Kim was the creative type who might not thrive if she wasn't running her own show.
2: Yeah, when we started dating Kim, she told me she wanted to be a businesswoman. (laughs) Right? Uh, we
1: started when we were like 16, by yeah. the way. Let, oh wow! Let me go
2: back. I got to tell the whole story because Kim doesn't like all the details because they're not always in her favor. But remember, at the <laughs> end of this, we ended up together. We have a happy life, two kids, and a business. But I met Kim freshman year, second period gym class at Morgan Park High School on the South Side of Chicago. And when I I finally like I liked her, I thought she was cute, and I finally built up the courage to go and talk to her. And then as we were talking at her locker, she introduces me to her boyfriend right before I'm trying to get her number. And so, you know, I'm a little disappointed, but uh, come junior year, I realized, okay, we're both single. Let's see what's going on with that. And we finally got together our uh, the spring semester of our junior year. Um, and that's when she let me know she wanted to be a businesswoman. So I knew things were like, gonna happen for us but me I kind of just wanted somebody to pay me to read I wasn't the natural entrepreneur
1: and I at the time I was in class and the reason I knew this right so because I kind of grew up in on the south of Chicago so single moms I have uh, brothers and sisters we didn't have a lot of money and I really felt like I had to like quote unquote make it out right um and so I thought working in corporate was the way I would do that. I didn't know that I would be an entrepreneur but I just knew I worked in corporate but I did create little things here and there. Like one time I needed earrings, we were in a Kimmy's class. Clips. Yeah, my really Clips. And I had like paper clips, a sort of paper clips. And I like put them on a ring to make like a cylinder. And it was like maybe like 20 clips in a cylinder like circle. And then I put one big clip on it and hung it on my ears. So I kind of had like cylinder paper clips. It's really weird. Were,
2: <laughs> let's, let's let's market that. It was custom handmade earring designs. Ah!
0: Right. For they, real, they sustainable materials.
1: <laughs> yeah. Materials. Yes. Everyone, his sister met me. She was like, "Why does this weird girl have paper clips in her earring? Ear. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, but that's so classic. Making something out of nothing, right? Oh my
1: god! And I wore those clips, and then I happened to find like um, a belt that had bottle caps on it. It was so hipster, and so then I had like the bottle cap belt with the paper clip earrings, and I really felt really cool and unique. <laughs>
2: But Kim was big into art too. So I thought it could go both ways. Her mom was an artist, and then she has the heart of an artist, but she wanted to be a businesswoman. Yeah. Um, and so I think like entrepreneurship is a way for her to create, but then also have that business on the side.
3: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so uh, now we know how you met. And then later in the journey, uh... CurlMix came about, but before you started CurlMix, um, I guess there were actually sort of three layers to your funding the business story, but they were each unique and each sort of you, you two did it your own way. Um, can you tell me the first leg of that funding journey?
1: Yeah, the first leg of our funding journey really uh, was Tim's job. He was working in tech and he kind of uh, like basically... Funded us, you know, until (laughs) while we bootstrapped. Like, we used the money that he made from his job, and then we were able to get good credit from his job, and then we used that to build our DIY box. That was like the first kind of funding that we ever got.
2: Oh, no, no,
1: no. Oh, the
2: NHA. Okay, so a lot of people don't know (laughs) this, right? But we actually, Chromix is our second business, right? The first business we ever created, it crashed and burned, <laughs> but we learned so much along the way. Like we consider it like an investment in our business education. We gotta we pay for an MBA with the failed business. But uh I don't know, maybe you could tell How did you come up with the idea for your first business?
1: So the first business was a social network for natural hair. And we were doing pitch competitions and everything. We weren't winning them, um, mostly because it was a niche social network and niche social networks in tech. Faces, they say it don't. They don't work, right? That's the, the quote. Niche, the social networks don't work.
2: If your business could be a Facebook group, yeah, don't it start it. just be a Facebook.
3: Group. <laughs> right, right, or, or Reddit, you know, sub subreddit or whatever, right? Right.
1: But we had a hard time funding it, and so I was one summer we were sitting there on the couch, and Tim was literally we were watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and Tim answered maybe I don't know for two hours straight, like 95 percent of the questions right, and I was like, I've never. Can anybody get this stuff right like this on the first try, but like, you have to be on the show. So I literally bought him a plane ticket, signed him up, and sent him out there to audition. Um,
2: Mind and- you, I did not want to do this. I thought this was, <laughs> thought <it> was silly. <laughs> like, I'm a trivia nerd, right? I did academic decathlon. Like, trivia is my jam. But I just I came home from my internship one summer and she was like, I know you think it's stupid, but I booked your plane ticket, your hotel, and your tryout. You're going to New York. No questions. that I said, yes, dear. I got <laughs> on a plane <laughs> and I just so happened to audition and make it onto the show. Um, and that's where we won one hundred thousand um, dollars. And I promised him at least twenty five K to start the first business, but ended up winning one hundred K. And we used that to fund that first business because just no one would give us any money to fund our idea. We had no connections. Couldn't get a VC meeting to save our life. Right. I don't think we've ever won any money from a pitch competition yet. Like, even when we pitched Chromex, we haven't won. Um, but you know, we have to find a way to do it.
3: Oh my gosh. One of the fastest growing businesses in the United States, and you haven't won a pitch competition. You had to go on a freaking game show. <laughs> <laughs> that bootstrapper. Oh my gosh! Well, that's incredible. So, so that's is that the point when you turned the social network sort of into actually having a product for natural hair rather than a community for women with natural hair or people with natural hair?
1: Yes. So we started with the social network. Then we did the DIY box. So we did the Who Wants a Millionaire. Then we funded our business with our personal credit, and then we got the money from Arlen from Backstage Capital for twenty five thousand dollars. That was the first check anyone had ever written me because of the belief they had in our business. That changed my entire world because I couldn't believe someone believed in us so much. Um, so I will forever love Arlen Hamilton for that. And that was the year that we did one million in revenue. So we turned our 25000 into a million in revenue. So it's huge for us.
3: Wow, that's incredible! And so, describe to me what the first box um, of DIY uh, product was. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you know a lot of folks are used to just going to the store and yeah, you know, buying their Suave shampoo or whatever, right? And that's not a solution for every style of hair, right?
2: Right. You know what's funny? We actually got the idea from an episode of Shark Tank. Um so Kim, she was a DIYer. She would make her own hair care products at home. Like she'd go to the store, you know, like Whole Foods, spend $300, come back, destroy my kitchen, leave me with the dishes and then not even have like products that she really liked all the time. Um but and we were like there's got to be a better way. So we were watching Shark Tank and there was a a lady who would send you organic ingredients to make your own or cookies at home. And We were like, "Okay, that sounds like a cool idea. I wonder if anyone's doing this for hair. And we just could not find anything. So I was like, you know what, Kim? You could do this, right? This could be the next business. Why don't you just make it yourself? You could call it like Curl Mix or something.
1: Yeah, he did come up (laughs) with a name. And originally I was like, no one wants this. This is why, you know, this is like 2015. Other boxes existed, but this one didn't. And so we did that for maybe two years. And we got to maybe like 200K in revenue or something around there. Um, I have a hard time remembering it. But it wasn't growing like it it was supposed to grow, but our customers kept buying one box over and over and over again. And it was our flaxseed gel because flaxseeds, literally you have to boil real raw flaxseeds that you would normally eat, get the gel from it, and then figure out how to preserve the gel. And so most, when I went to manufacturers to make it for us, they all said no. They were like, no, this is too laborious. We are not going to boil raw flaxseeds for you. It's variable. It might come out different every time. It's too, too much. They all said no. And so we said, okay, well, we have to do it ourselves. And that was the first product that we used to pivot our business to get to that millionaire. Oh
2: revenue. no, Kim, you gotta give the details. We <laughs> we really tried everything we could to get these products like off, off the off of the DIY and into people's hands ready-made. And so when we got shut down, um, we were initially thinking about just not selling it, right? But our advisor at the time, he said, you never stop selling your best selling product. Yeah. And so you just like, figure it out. Um, and so Kim, at seven months pregnant, mind you, with our first baby, she spent a whole month in the kitchen on her feet, coming up with 50 or 60 different batches and, and tests to make sure this preserve, this preservative system worked for the flaxseed joe. And then we finally got something that worked. And so we decided to like, just pre-launch it just to see if people actually wanted this. Because at this point in business, we knew that just because you have a good idea or a product doesn't mean that people will buy it. So we're like, let's do a pre-launch. And so we just put up a little landing page and we, we emailed our, our subscribers and they were like, are you guys interested in this? We're opening up 60 slots. And so those 60 slots sold out like that. We were like, okay. We Got some, let's open up another. We've never
1: sold out anything. Never, fast, ever. never, never. And then, in the two, three years that we had been in business, this was the most successful we were experiencing. We we're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, let's launch true. another hundred, and literally within hours, sold out of that. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what people want. Um, yeah. and so- and we we're like, okay, let's not open up anymore because now we actually have to make
2: it. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Right, right. And how are you spreading the word about these launches? Was it the existing network that you had from both the social network and the sales of of the boxes? Or or was it organically spreading online or through social?
1: So our box concept initially was to work with an influencer for every box launch. So we did that for 24 months. We had an influencer um, and that was costly um, because you were working with, you know, influencers. But we had built up a small audience. I would say by the time we had the Flexi gel ready-made, we maybe had maybe 10,000 email subscribers. So we kind of had a small community and a small Facebook, follow, Instagram following as well. But what was really our champion is our Facebook group. So all of our customers, you know, uh, we put them in a community in our Facebook group. And that is the heart of Chromix and what we do. And I just think it's so funny because it's almost full circle, right? Like we launched a social network kind of failed, right? Then we launched a a DIY box and then we pinned it to a product and then we built this community and then we needed a place for it. So then we built the Facebook group. And so now we have a thriving Facebook group, but it's because of the product. So it's a very full circle.
3: Yeah, but it is your community, right? Regardless of where it's hosted. That's fantastic. And so that core group kind of became your supporters, your advocates, your customers. And how has that kind of Helped your business grow and expand over the years. I mean, you attained this completely remarkable growth rate over the past three years. Um, tell me about that.
1: So it's funny that you mentioned that. Has the, the Facebook group contribute to that growth? Because I, th- it's a private group, so we only allow our customers to be in it. But when we went to do our, net- our other round of funding, right? So we did Shark Tank. We raised one point two million from Jeff Weiner and uh, other colleagues. I can explain that later, too.
3: Yes, I would love that.
1: (laughs) And then we did the crowdfunding. And so the crowdfunding allowed our customers to become our own investors, right? And the only way we were able to successfully do that is with that Facebook group. So when we first launched the campaign, we dropped the link of that group, and our customers invested a few hundred thousand within a couple hours. And I was like, oh my gosh, Like this is how much they believe in what we're doing, you know? it's kind of
2: crazy, this whole thing, because we had been building up community. We've been telling people how important community was to your success in business. But this really, really showed us, because not only do we have our customers, but there are people in Chicago who believe in us. There are our friends and our network who believe in us. And so now CurlMix is customer and community owned, right? There are almost 5,000 investors, small investors that just believe in what we're doing and they want to see it succeed in the future. And like, I think we hit like a million dollars in less than four hours. And we were just like, mind blown. We thought this was going to take months. Yeah. And the numbers just kept climbing. And so we were just blown away. And then when it comes to like, just the growth of the business, right? When we were doing DIY boxes, we were making around 130K the first full year in business. And within three years, we'd hit over a million in sales after we pivoted. And so that's all because of the community and the people who believe in us and the fact that we do our best to serve them and keep them involved.
3: When we come back, I'll talk with Kim and Tim about how they're thinking about their community evolved over time. But first, a quick break.
0: Visit Slack.com to get started.
3: So let's back up on the funding story a little bit. Tell me about Shark Tank. What was what was that experience like? How did you decide to do it? And or was it like like the game show where you were like, okay, I guess <laughs> I guess she wants me to do this?
1: You know, and for a time, I felt like Shark Tank was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Mm. And then I had a natural childbirth and I was like, oh, that was definitely the hardest. (laughs) And then we crowdfunded. So then I was like, that was actually the hardest because it's kind of like a mini IPO. it's like going public almost because you go through the audit and things like that. But Shark Tank itself, um, it was a phenomenal experience. It was very difficult, but it was totally worth every moment that we put into it. Um, We basically showed up to the audition with our six month old and he cried at the casting. Like when we were auditioning, uh, we didn't have babysitters or anything like yeah, that. We only
2: heard about it like the day before. Yeah. Um. So like at the beginning of 2018, we were growing super fast month over month. And so we went from like zero to 30 K a month in sales. And we were like, Oh my God, we need help. We need to get out of our kitchen. Like right. we need a new facility. We need like employees. We need people to help fast. Um, And it would be great to have a shark on our team. So my aunt told us about the audition. She was like, it's tomorrow. Can you make it? And we are like, we can try.
1: And our (laughs) Um, aunt's not connected to Shark Tank in any way. She just heard about the casting. She's like, I know Kimmitson. you guys are in business. You guys got your curl
2: mix thing. yeah. Your
1: little business. You know, as they (laughs) say, your little business. (laughs) And so we showed up and we pitched and our baby starts to cry at the end of the pitch. And I was like, oh crap, we're not going to make it. And then at the end of it, the producer's like, hmm, you're Kim and Tim. I like that. And I was like, yeah, oh, cute. okay. You got a, it's a love story.
2: This is not, hunting. your baby is fine. Like, he's good. Okay, <laughs> so we made it to the next round. So we were like, okay, great. <laughs> we're good. Uh, and then throughout that summer, you have to go through successive rounds of like getting ready, working with the producers, getting your pitch together, building your setup. Like, there's so much that goes into it. And all we wanted to do was make sure we we're going to be, just be successful and not embarrass ourselves on national TV. Yes. Yeah. So we were drilling like it was finals week back in college. Like we had uh, a stack of cards like this thick of all the questions from like the last couple seasons of Shark Tank. And then we wrote answers on the back with stories. And we were just drilling each
1: other. Because we worked together. So it would be on the way to work, like home from work. We didn't each other. So that when. Man. A cockroach. You know, <laughs> your, your number. You don't know your numbers. <laughs> We're
3: being very nervous. Who liked to play with shark?
2: I, I needed to be Mr. Wonderful. I feel like. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and so we went on the show and
1: standing in front of a billion plus dollars in net worth and pitching your business with thirty cameras on you. You can't see all the cameras. There's like thirty cameras. There's lights. And they're just the sharks, and they're just looking all smug, looking at you. Like, and when just, you
2: walk out the door, that, you, that's your only shot. Like, there really is this this thing about Shark Tank. They do
1: not <laughs> let you re- record that first 30 seconds. so you don't flub it, right? Oh my gosh. That was, um, I have never been more nervous in my entire life to pitch anything. But after going on the show, Robert offered us a $400,000 investment for 20% of the business. But we wanted, um, at that point, we were going to make a million in revenue that year. So he basically gave us a $2 million valuation, which it was not a good deal at all. And Robert was like, I don't know anything about the industry, but, you know, I believe in you guys. And I was just like, ah, I like the valuation, though, is really, really low. And I knew we'd raise money again in the future. So I, we had to turn the deal down. Um Sorry, Robert.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, do you do you feel like the Sharks got it? They, did they understand the product? Did they understand your audience?
1: Robert didn't.
2: Well, yeah, but Lori <laughs> did what the guest shark on there did. Mark. He's like, I don't know anything about curly hair, but your numbers are good. Your business are good. I'm out, but I like you guys. And then also one of our goals was like, we got the good for you. We got that from Mark. He liked the business. <laughs> so you know, all in all, it was a success.
3: Yeah, that's great. And it's so smart that you were able to just say like, all right, we got some validation, but we don't like the terms of this deal. We're going to walk away.
1: And it was important to me to be honest on the show. Sometimes people will take the deals just for the press, just to be like, oh, we had a deal. But like 70% of the deals on Shark Tank don't actually close. And so I didn't want to be that. I wanted to be honest about it. And I wanted it to air. And because, you know, even if you film, it may not air. And that's other things people don't know. And so it it worked out for the best, I think.
2: Mm -hmm. And even better, because that's actually how we got our next investment, Uh, Jeff Wiener, the CEO of LinkedIn at the time, he was watching the show with his wife when he decided to invest over a million with a couple of his business partners. And so that was an even better benefit on the side, right? If we took that deal, um, we wouldn't have been ready to take the next deal, which was even better, right? We were able to get a $12 million valuation.
3: Wow. So uh, how did that work out? Did he just have, you know, one of his reps call you up uh, following up on that?
1: Actually, Arlen, um, and this is why I will always rave about her. She put me in touch with Jeff's partner, and he basically had given us a $200,000 investment to help us fund inventory for the show. You know, if you're doing $100,000 a month and then you go on Shark Tank, you're going to be doing five hundred, dollars or maybe even a million. It'll be a massive like jump, and you don't have the money to fund that inventory. And so he um, did a convertible note for us before that million-dollar investment. And so then, after we were doing like you know really crazy revenue, Jeff and Mike called me back. Like those sharks are crazy for not giving her a better deal. We want to invest, but they also uh, want to invest in people of color because they're like, if we only continue to invest in white straight males, people who look like me, it won't reflect the world, and the world doesn't look like that. And so, um, and I really appreciate
3: them that, for that as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's so great. Take me through how you decided to do the crowdfunding. Where did the the foundations of that next financial step and community building come from?
2: Would you believe that even after Shark Tank and even after our first investment, that Kim still couldn't get an investment from other VCs, right? We took so many meetings last year and we got the same answer. It was no or we need to see more. And so we are growing Mind you, we 5X'd in a year, like after Shark Tank, and we still couldn't get an investment, right? And that just goes to show you the challenge that you know women and people of color have when it comes to raising money. Kim knows the stats better than me, but very little of VC investment actually goes to businesses like ours.
1: So less than 3% go to women, which is crazy, right? Because women make up half the population. How can we only be getting 3% of venture capital? But then, and then if you look at like black women, we get like 0.006%, which is like, you know, and if you think about that, people of color make up, black people make up 16% of the population. So at the very least, I would expect it to match. but I mean, it just doesn't. So it's really kind of disheartening. So we have to be more, creative and unconventional in our approach to fundraising for our business, which is why we've done things like Who Wants a Millionaire and Shark Tank and um, crowdfunding. Um, it's just It's been really unconventional, but I think it's worked out for us and it's been better for us.
2: Ultimately, it fits what we want to create with Chromix, right? So Chromex is just one, of the, our first brand in a long line of other brands because our goal is to be like the next Procter & Gamble. We want to be a huge conglomerate of companies and brands that service industries that are ignored or overlooked or underserved, right? And so the goal of the crowdfund is to say, we want to be a big company and IPO one day, and we want to bring the community that we serve along with us. So not only is Chrome going to be successful, but the people who decide to invest in us and believed in us early on, you know, if we IPO, they're going to be successful as well. And we can create generational wealth in a community that's sorely lacking it. And that's going to, that's just, right where we want to be. Um, And that's kind of the legacy we want to leave.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That is such an impressive goal. Um, What are your big goals for the next couple of years? Um, Speaking of that, uh, where do you see future growth? I mean, you just had a period of very fast growth. How do you keep that up? What does the company look like today? And what do you envision it'll look like in five years?
1: In five years, I hope to have, you know, three to five brands that are doing $20 million each. You know, that is my goal. I want to... Okay,
3: no small <laughs> <laughs> There's
2: no problem with thinking big here. Yeah, yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I would love to IPO. I mean, there's only, I think, one Black woman who's ever taken a company public, which is insane. And then if you look at the, the stats around women taking companies public, I think there were like 20 in the last couple decades out of the hundreds of men that are taking companies public every year. Mm. So I that would be a, a dream of mine.
3: Fantastic. Um, how many employees do you have today?
1: Close to 40. Um, we manufacture on the west side of Chicago. So half of our team is manufacturing and the other half is digital. And they're kind of all over the country.
3: Great how did the pandemic affect business? Um, what, Ooh. yeah, what's happened over the past year and a half? And, That's
1: and, a loaded question. <laughs>
3: I mean, it's it's really, it's crazy because it affects every industry. It has affected every industry so differently and every business so differently and every individual, right? I mean, I feel like everyone has a story. Some people have come out of, of it surprisingly well or are coming out and some are, their doors are closed forever, so. And it's so
1: disheartening. Yeah. And I, Kristen, I can't,
3: I can't imagine having to have been a company that had to close. I, my heart would be
1: broken. Um, and then just all people who depend on us. It's the scariest thing ever. But we are part of the e eco- So we've been intentionally direct to consumer because I think that sometimes playing the retail game can be distracting. You don't actually have the relationship with the customer. Instead, you have a relationship with the, your business to business if you're doing retail versus you know business to customer. And so we intentionally stay e-com so that we can focus on getting our product market fit our supply chain and strong all those things and so we were still you know e-commerce only at the top of the pandemic so that was like really good for business however the supply chain has been Ooh. widely impacted across the board for yeah. all manufacturers especially because china is the backbone of everyone's supply chain
2: yeah at the top because I, I used to be coo and so at the top of the pandemic like when, when things first shut down almost everybody was doing just-in-time production, right? So you don't hold on to too much inventory. um, You kind of make stuff as you need it, order as you need it. And that just kind of ground almost the whole system (laughs) to a halt. And so we were really, really struggling, at least initially, because we had all these people at home ordering online with very little access to, you know, new inventory. And so for like a few weeks, we were behind and we struggled in order to try to get new bottles in, get raw materials, because we make all of our own things. And so we struggled there, but because we had that community, they were there to support us. So we were upfront and honest. It was like, hey, things are gonna be delayed, but we're going to get it to you. And so our community worked with us throughout that struggle. And so we were able to come out of the pandemic largely unscathed, right? And then we were able to add jobs to the business. And now we're looking to grow coming out of the pandemic. we survived and we made it, uh, you know, can't say that for for every business, but because of our community, we were able to make it through that. And so the goal is to grow from
3: this. Yeah, that's fantastic. It sounds like your community is so supportive and so strong. Um, And I think, you know, I credit that to you guys and probably much of the way you communicate with them and take them along for the ride as you hinted that you do. Do you have any advice for other business owners in terms of how to communicate with the audience, how to bring them along on that ride and let them be part of your journey?
1: So I know we talked about our Facebook group earlier. That's usually my suggestion. It's the one thing that's so easy to do, but most brands never launch one because they're just like, oh, I have to like talk to customers every day. But it's like, well, you want them to buy from you. So you kind of have to create a relationship that's more than you know, a transaction. So you need a place where you can kind of go back and forth in communication. But a lot of the main channels that we use are for promotion and therefore like us speaking to other people and not allowing them to speak back to us. I think sometimes too, as business owners, we're almost afraid to talk directly to our customer because you're going to hear the truth. You're going to hear like, how they really felt about your product, how they really felt about your service, how they really feel about you as a CEO, whatever, you know what I mean?
2: Everybody knows about the Facebook comments, right? Not everything is a (laughs) hunky-dory.
1: Right. One of my professors used to say this all the time in college. Uh, She would say, feedback is a gift. And so (laughs) being able to get feedback from your customers in real time is the biggest value to your business. It's going to help you be better. It's going to help you face the truth. And your customers are objective. They're going to tell you exactly what it is.
2: And then one of the cool things that Kim came up with and actually right before the pandemic um, was we have a live show called Washington Wednesday where we go live on Facebook and we show people how to use our products. And so Kim gets in the shower or when we were before pandemic, it was at a studio at our office, but she gets in the shower and she uses her hair, uses the products. She's answering questions. We're making jokes. We're singing and we're talking. And I'm
1: fully clothed. Yeah, We
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got a little uniform down. But we're talking to our customers. We know them by name. They come back. We say, what's up? How's the family? They give Kim show recommendations. Now she's binge watching All-American. <laughs> the right? There, there's so many different things that come from just getting to know the people you serve. And that's all that we're trying to do here.
3: That's amazing. How has working together as a couple, as a family, now you have two little ones. So many um, business owners I talk to work with a friend or work with someone they're dating. And it is like wow, I get a spectrum of different experiences there. What advice, what advice do you have about working with your significant other? And has there been a high point and a low point in that experience?
2: I don't know if I worked with somebody I was just dating. That sounds yeah. like a recipe for just that. Well, you
1: were, you're, you're terrible. <laughs> not, that,
2: that's a lot of stress. <laughs>
1: I'm not going um, to lie. But some of that shared money from very early on. Like, High school. We, yeah. Right? Yeah. We had a bank account together in college. Wow. Yeah. And most most people would never, right? People would be married, they're married 20, 30 years and they still have separate bank accounts, you know. Um, but we've shared everything from the very beginning. He bought my first suit for our first bit. What was it called? The, yeah, it was a career day. Career day or something like yeah. that in college. So that's the basis of that's the foundation of our relationship before talking about working together in business. So there's a lot of trust that goes on if we could share a bank account together at 19 20 years old and we've still only maintained one bank account together
2: yeah and so we we grew up together right and we had to depend on each other very much um early early on um well we've been together since you were 15
1: 16 yeah
2: and so i'm I'm turning 30 on saturday so oh wow
3: Wow. happy birthday thank you that's amazing and so, so being sort of a unit operating as a unit, do you do you separate work from your home life, or is it all a, a, a unit as well?
2: Absolutely not.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. There's,
2: no, there's no way. There's no separate representation.
3: No state. way.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I feel like that is that works for us because we're fluid people, right? So Tim knows I'm working on a big project, and he knows I have to work till midnight. He's like, "No worries, I got you. I take the kids." You know, it's not like. It's five o'clock and you should be down here with the it's not like that, you know? Um the highs and lows though, you so a high point I would say is like now that we have like really good work-life balance, right? So now I do get off at five. Um sometimes. Most of the time I get most off at five. Days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most. Of the time. But the lowest point what I would say is when I felt like we were giving too much to the business. The lowest point I would say was when um I knew we needed to hire people and it was after a Black Friday sale and we had basically overpromised. Um, and we didn't have enough team to fulfill these orders. Mm-hmm. So he yeah, was like, we got
2: into a big we had maybe three people helping us, and we decided to do a, a bogo. yeah, and so every every order was doubled, and then the sale went viral, and it was just the three we were up to like five a m doing orders one time to the point where Kim was just like, we we need help. You can't do this. I He's know. like, no,
1: I got it. I, I got like, it. It's I,
2: two weeks after. She's like, I project. know you wanted to do this. I know you tried your best, but like, we need help. And yeah, that was a, a little come to Jesus moment where it was like, okay, you know, I, I'm gonna trust Kim to do the right thing. Like I, I did my best. Let's get in help. You put out like a post on Facebook. But our <laughs> community again here. Put a post on Facebook and at five a.m. and by eight o'clock we had like a bunch of volunteers come helping us. Well, we paid them, but yeah, <laughs> it was a
1: bunch of like it was like four or five people. So basically, the points where the business was too consuming, mm-hmm. that was the hardest part. Of, or I would say a low. Yeah, our
2: baby was there with us. If he was sleeping, wow, back and play. You know, we're five a.m. watching Elmo office.
1: all the time, and I was like, this is not this is healthy. Not. <laughs> yeah, this is not healthy.
3: But like, it sounds like it was hard to sort of start to give up that control or start to accept that you needed help, even fulfilling orders. Was that a challenge? And how did you overcome it kind of mentally?
1: You know, someone told me you're never going to build anything massive alone. And I know my dreams, as you heard earlier, are really big. So I have to figure out how to not only inspire and motivate other people, but like build a community and a network of people in, within the business to help push that idea forward. And I think I had that realization after we did that sale and we couldn't really fulfill the demand. And I was like, this is not, so we have to make a change, you know? And so that's when we really started changing our ideas around hiring people um, and doing everything ourselves.
2: Yeah. And then on top of that, it was, what kind of business do we want to build, right? What kind of responsibility will we have to the people who help us create this business? And so um, I don't know, we didn't really mention it earlier, but Kim started in corporate prior to starting her first business and she hated it. It wasn't a healthy, safe environment for her to be in. Um, and so we decided that when we become employers, we want to build the company that we would have wanted to work for. Yeah. And so we are really, really keen on the fact that we provide a great working environment and we provide a living wage and benefits for all of our people starting from day one. So yeah. now- We start at $19 an hour entry level with health, dental, vision, you know, a 401k and life insurance for everyone that comes to work for Chromix. And that's just base level. And it goes up and we hire from within. And so we've been able to not only build a team, but then also keep people, retain people and train them so that now our entire leadership team is our first employees in the business. Um, And that's just been a kind of a marvel of Kim's leadership is that she's been able to grow and develop. A team to get us to this point, um, and not, you, not rely on people who are, you know, outside experts coming in or more experienced. We've really gotten to grow um, ourselves as the business grows.
1: I do want to qualify something, and I don't hate corporate. I think my first jobs were just a shock to the system mm-hmm. because they were so conservative. Like I, I got in trouble for every little, like not wearing a suit jacket, you know, like just little, little, little stuff. And I did end up working places that were more liberal later on. Um, but I realized that I'm a creator at heart. I am a creative and I need to be able to create something in my jobs. And I didn't have jobs where I was responsible for creating. I was more so a cog in the wheel and I wasn't happy.
2: Throughout that entire time, we'll probably always maintain, you know, some on-site staff, but I think with the way the future is going, we will always have, like, a digital team that is, you know, works from home or that, you know, that it's a global workforce. Like, we've had people who move from the States to Africa or Mexico, and during the time they were working here, and, like, that's really going to be the future of our team. So, we will have that big beautiful facility, and then also a big, beautiful online team of people who are supporting us around the world, hopefully.
3: Yeah. I mean, the changing nature of work, it's its happening. Um, where's your farthest flung employee right now?
1: Ooh. So I would say uh, one of our customer service reps, she frequents Africa. Wow. So she gets, yeah, so, so any given Every, month, any given month <laughs> she, she can be in, in like Botswana or South, Cape Town or something. You never know. Like I would say she's the furthest.
3: Oh, that's fantastic. What has been your biggest learning experience over the past five years, either individually or as a unit? My biggest
1: learning experience has come from managing and coaching people. I think that a lot of people jump into entrepreneurship because they hate their job, which is not a good reason to jump into entrepreneurship. (laughs) The best reason is because you actually have a problem that you want to solve and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the thing that people need. And Um, I'm the
2: one who should
1: create. Right, and I'm uniquely positioned to do that. I, I have some thoughts around how I left my job. So I don't think that was the right thing to do it. But anyway, you know, you live, you learn. So that was never something I learned. I didn't stay at work long enough to learn how to do that, right? If I had uh, waited maybe a decade or so, I would have been able to do that as an entrepreneur naturally. So I had to like really learn how to coach people. And when I say that, right, so you think about an employee that maybe you just hired, They're going to be a great fit, but you're not having the best, you know, onboarding experience with them. Or they're not, they're not doing X, Y, and Z right. And what I realized, it's not like, uh, oh, this person should be fired and not doing what I expected. Because a lot of entrepreneurs, they do that initially. They're like, oh, I'm not getting this result with this ROI. Really, you didn't communicate and coach and refine and help the person that you hired be the most successful in their position. So you've got to figure out how to communicate your needs for the business and their points of success. So if you do this, you're successful. And then tell me how you might think about getting this done. You can go this way or that way and still get to the same goal, right? And then you also still have to motivate and inspire people. People aren't just like, okay, I hired you to do it, you know? You have to, they have to believe in the vision. They have to believe in what you're doing. They have to like you as a person. Otherwise, they feel like they're wasting their time. And so I think the workforce has completely changed. I work with other employees who maybe like grew up in a different generation and they don't expect the...
2: They don't expect us to care about
1: them. At all, you know, and, and, and it's crazy to me because they're like, oh, Ken and Tim, you guys are so generous, but then I'll meet like someone who's like newer or younger who hasn't been in the workforce and their expectations are like, okay, what you guys are doing is the base level. I need to have, I want you, you know, we need to be having one-on-one hour long sessions weekly or we need to be like, you know, like they just have different expectations or I should have unlimited PTO. Like, why are you limiting me to these? You know, and it's just like, so you have to manage, the expectations around workplace environment for 20 year olds, all the way up to 60, 50 year, you know, whatever. So that has been the most challenging and the biggest learning lesson I've had.
2: And for me, it's pretty similar as well. Like ultimately, you know, any business is just people, right? Whether it's your customers, employees, your suppliers, all of it is people and the relationships you have with them. Um, And so if you can maintain those healthy relationships with your customers, your community, your people, and employees... You will be successful eventually, right? It may not may not happen <laughs> right away, uh, but eventually, if you continue to do the right things by the people uh, who support you, you'll be successful. And that, and I feel like a lot of people lose sight on that, especially nowadays in, in the world of like analytics and tech and numbers. We lose sight that you know on the other end of that screen or that order is a person, and they have a family, they have things that they want, they have hopes and dreams and expectations. Um, and you're there to serve them and solve their problems. And then on the employee side, like Kim said, there, there's so many things that you have to balance because now you're responsible pretty much for someone's livelihood, right? The money that they get from their wages goes on to support their family, you know, care for their children, like all these big things. But at the end of the day, it's people. Um, and that's the biggest lesson I had to learn for sure.
3: Great. Kim and Tim, thank you so much for being with me today.
2: Thank you
1: so much for having us, Kristen. This is a blast. Oh yes. Yeah.
2: One of my favorite interviews ever. I had someone some, some...
3: After speaking with Kim and Tim, I'm so struck not just by their wild story of funding their business from a game show to Shark Tank to Silicon Valley and right back to their community, but also how natural they are as partners in life and in business. How they seem to support each other's visions and work so hard together in step aiming at the same things, the success of both their family and their business. After talking to them for a while, it struck me that perhaps the same thing that made them so successful in pivoting their business from a social network to a DIY kit to a natural hair solution with a hard-to-find best-selling product was that they listened. And hearing the way they both listened to each other and bounced their stories off each other made me realize that listening is so key. It's super simple, sure, But listening, it's totally underrated as a skill to really hone and do well. And that can enrich not just your company, but also your life. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would love our show, please send them a link to your favorite episode. You can drop us a note to let us know what you think anytime at Inc.com. or find me on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, with whom we will not speak of hair, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Lagorio chafkin Thank you for listening to What I
0: Know.